Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden and Vice President Harris celebrated the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson as the next Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court with a ceremony at the White House. Here's NPR's Asma Khalid. President Biden spoke of the, quote, vile, baseless accusations he said Jackson faced during her Senate confirmation hearing and praised her for the poise, patience and constraint she showed in the face of it. We'll look back, he said, and see this as a real moment of change. Judge Jackson then spoke. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. We've made it, she repeated, all of us. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Bodies are still being exhumed from mass graves in Bucha, Ukraine, adding to evidence of alleged Russian war crimes that investigators say they are gathering. Human Rights Watch is leading some of the searches. The organization's advocacy director for Europe and Central Asia, Lipzom describes the work underway in Bucha, European, and other areas to find out exactly what happened to the slain civilians. We've also documented more recently, in fact, before the uh, images emerged from Bucha and Irpin, uh, cases of extrajudicial killings of civilians, two of them in uh, Kiev suburbs and one uh, in Chernihiv suburbs, cases where uh, people were rounded up or killed in their homes uh, by Russian forces. Russian officials have called the images of mass killings and torture fabricated. The West had warned that the Russian forces who'd recently left the Kiev suburbs were likely preparing for major offensives in the east. Today, officials in Kramatorsk accused Russia of launching a missile strike on a crowded train station. They say at least 50 people, including children, were killed. Several U.S. government agencies teamed up with German law enforcement to shut down a massive dark web market this week. The goal is to prevent the spread of paid cybercrime services and the use of virtual currency for payment. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. German officials with the federal criminal police shut down servers used to operate one of the world's largest darknet markets, seizing $25 million worth of Bitcoin sold on the market named Hydra after the mythological sea monster with many heads. They teamed up with U.S. law enforcement and the U.S. Department of Treasury, which sanctioned Hydra and identified over 100 virtual currency addresses used to conduct illegal digital transactions. Hydra was based in Russia, a country that has a reputation for being a safe haven for cyber criminals, who also sometimes work for the state. This operation is one of many in recent weeks taking aim at malicious Russian cyber activity during the war in Ukraine. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state is extending an emergency order to help Massachusetts hospitals and medical facilities fill staffing shortages through the end of the year. It allows nursing students and recent nursing school grads who are not yet licensed to go to work. The Massachusetts Nurses Association opposes the practice and says it is not safe to put inexperienced nurses into an unstable environment. Massachusetts may have to stop sending its garbage up to Maine. Yesterday, state senators in Maine voted unanimously to close a loophole that has allowed out-of-state trash to end up in Maine's only state-owned landfill. Operators say the landfill near Old Town, Maine, was intended to accept only garbage from Maine, yet one-third of the site filled up with waste from elsewhere. Maine's House will vote on the matter next week. And the 2022 baseball season for the Red Sox is now officially underway. The Sox are in New York. They open the season against the Yankees this afternoon. It is now the eighth inning, and the game is tied at 4-4. 
relief pitcher Nat Strom is on the mound now. In the forecast should be a lovely night tonight. Uh, partly cloudy skies falling to the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, scattered thunderstorms, partly sunny, a gusty wind, highs nearing 60. For Sunday, partly sunny, the slight chance of a shower in the afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. It's 59 degrees now in Boston at 405. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance for protecting everything under one roof by bundling home and auto. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. We are taking just about two and a half minutes right now to ask you to, if you have yet make a pledge, to make a pledge to WBUR, do it right now before we go to All Things Considered with the latest news from Ukraine, news about uh, uh, vaccines, news coming from the White House as well. There is so much coming down the pike to, for us to tell you about that we're really trying to keep these fund drive uh, breaks short. And therefore, we're just saying $5, $5 Friday. Please, if you can make a contribution to $5 a month, we would so appreciate it. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here with On Point host Magnus Chakrabarty. Hi, Lisa. And $5 Friday. That means just for $5 a month, you get the continuous coverage that you've been hearing, for example, all day today about the latest that is unfolding in Ukraine. You get the coverage, as Lisa mentioned, from the White House. Uh, locally here as well, because the news doesn't stop uh, in Massachusetts. And we're all asking just for $5 in return, $5 a month on this $5 Friday. Call 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. And when you become a sustainer, meaning give on a monthly basis, you should know that you can always change the amount. So let's say you choose to go above $5 if you can give $10 a month, $15 a month. If you need to change that because your budget changes, that's completely allowed. And uh, we just want to make it as easy as possible for you to support this non-commercial radio station, this independent radio station that brings you news that is in-depth with programs such as All Things Considered, Fresh Air, Morning Edition, and of course, Magnus Program On Point. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. $5 a month. Does the news mean at least that much to you? Does news you can trust and information you can rely on and stories that open your minds, does it mean at least $5 a month to you? If so, now's the time to call 1-800-909-9287. And we have an added incentive right now. If you can give $5 a month, we would be happy to give you the WBUR tote bag, the newest tote bag, so don't say you have too many because you don't have this one yet. This is a thanks for your gift of $5 a month, and if you you can bump it up to $10 a month. We would be happy only for today to be able to give you this Eton FRX3 radio along with the tote bag as our gift to you. So please make the phone call right now. These are only available until 6 o'clock tonight, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. $5 a month gets you the tote bag, $10 a month the tote bag and the Eton radio. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Add MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Lviv, Ukraine. The Ukrainian government says a Russian missile hit a train station in the city of Kramatorsk this morning, killing at least 50 people. This, as officials in cities across the eastern part of the country are telling people to evacuate ahead of an expected Russian offensive. NPR's Ader Peralta is in the capital of Kyiv and joins us now. Hey, Ader. Hey, Scott. Ader, the, the headline was just, just horrifying. Tell us more about this missile strike. Yeah, so as you said, uh, the Ukrainian government says uh, that a missile hit a train station in the city of Kramatorsk, and uh, that happened at about 10 a.m. this morning, and they said that it happened when thousands of people were trying to evacuate. Uh, and the images uh, that have emerged from there they're tough to look at. Uh, they show smoke rising from the station and the bodies and bodies in civilian clothes lying motionless in pools of blood and around them uh, are what appear to be abandoned luggage uh, and bags. Um, the head of the military administration in that region said that 50 people had died uh, and among them were five children and that about 100 people are being treated uh, in the hospital. At a press briefing, uh, Pavlo Krilenko, um, who was speaking through an interpreter, uh, didn't mince words. He blamed the Russians. Let's listen. They will try uh, to create panic and they will hit the local population, local civilians. They monitor the railway stations. They know where to hit, where to strike. Initially, they would only hit railways as such. And what he's saying is that uh, at first Russians used to hit empty buildings and now they're waiting for full train mm -hmm. stations to use what he described as cluster bombs. And those are munitions that are banned by international law because the damage they cause uh, is so indiscriminate. And it's worth noting that Russia has called these yeah. allegations absolutely untrue. The train station was full, and, and it was people trying to head west. It, it, the war has been going on since late February. Give us the context again of why so many people are trying to flee at this point in time from the east. Yeah, I mean, look, so where I am, where I saw you yesterday um, in Kiev, things are calming down a bit. Stores are opening, people are in the streets. Um, Russian troops have pulled out of the northern part of this region. Um, but the Ukrainian military is saying that Russia is not done with this war. They believe that the troops that withdrew from Kyiv are now in Belarus, uh, but they're only there to regroup and rearm. And they believe that once that's done, they will launch an assault in eastern Ukraine. Um, so government officials in three oblasts, in three states here, in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kharkiv, um, have been telling civilians to go. Uh, so over the past few days, thousands of people have been getting on trains uh, because they were afraid that the train service would stop. Um, so that's why people are rushing to yeah. train stations there. So if train stations filled with people are being targeted, how are people going to get out of the east? What are people going to do to prepare for future strikes? Yeah, I mean, look, that I think that is the big question, because one of the remarkable things throughout this war is that trains have never stopped running. Um, they have evacuated millions of Ukrainians to safety uh, to neighboring countries. And Trains are still running, uh, but there is fear that if airstrikes like this continue, the government will have to suspend service. And people can obviously use cars and buses, uh, but that uh, will very likely mean a much slower evacuation. It's NPR's Ader Peralta coming to us from Kiev. Ader, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. 
Hundreds of people are still dying from COVID-19 every day across the U.S. as the highly contagious variant BA2 takes hold. But there is a new study out that shows the U.S. vaccination campaign has saved more than 2 million American lives. It's also prevented 17 million hospitalizations and saved billions of dollars in healthcare costs. To talk about all of this. We're joined now by Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. So what do you think the country is in for over the next month when it comes to BA2? Well, I think we're going to be seeing an uptick of cases that we are already seeing in certain states. You know, we had a very sharp and steady decline in everything from cases to hospitalizations to deaths. And in general, on a countrywide basis, we're still seeing that. But there are some areas, counties and regions, particularly in the Northeast and here in Washington, D.C., we are seeing a turnaround and an uptick in cases. If our patent follows that of the U.K., which we usually do and are usually about three to four weeks behind them, Uh they are having a significant upsurge in the number of cases Uh, We are hoping that if that does happen, the degree of background immunity that we have in the country with a combination of those who've been infected and perhaps even vaccinated after infection and those who've been vaccinated and hopefully boosted, that we will not see an increase in severity in the sense of a concomitant increase significantly in the number of hospitalizations. But I think it is going to be in very, you know, without a doubt that we are going to see a turnaround as people get out more into the inside uh, uh, venues without masks. That's going to be certainly resulting in infections, even in people who are vaccinated. In that case, let's turn to boosters, this idea of a second booster. What do you think the likelihood is that the general population will need a second booster by this fall? I think it's, uh, you know, again, it's difficult to predict, but I would think given the fact that immunity wanes over a period of time, I would believe Mm -hmm. that the FDA right now feels this way, that we're getting prepared and we're doing the tests to look at the various combinations of what the most appropriate boost would be, that we would very likely have the population as we get into the fall and the cold season given the waning of immunity that we've seen very yep. consistently, that we will need a boost by the but time we get to the But your colleague at the FDA, your colleague Peter Marks at the FDA, he said the country can't keep boosting people every four months. Is right. that what you foresee, that we will no. have to keep boosting no. I, I every few months? I, no, I don't, okay. I don't foresee the need to boost every four months. What I see that we need to get the population vaccinated and boosted Remember, only 50% of the people have been boosted who, who are, in fact, vaccinated with their primary series. We need to get the people to get the third, dose, the third dose first, then move on to the fourth dose. But what I would imagine might happen, that as all of this turns around, we will get into what might be a yearly seasonal type of an approach hmm. because we always have respiratory like illnesses. Yeah, we have mm-hmm. something perhaps similar to flu. And I'm saying this merely as extrapolations. No one knows for certain what will be required. We will have to just look at the data and make decisions. But if you were to ask me what my 
projection would be, would be that by the time we get to the fall, that we will have to get everyone boosted with that fourth dose, and that we would likely see this to keep the durability of protection on a yearly basis. Okay. Well, in that case, I want to talk about indoor events because you were saying you see people still increasing their participation in indoor events. And as you well know, there were a number of infections in people who attended the annual gridiron dinner in Washington, D.C. I know you were there. Does that have you thinking twice about how you are going to be dealing with indoor events going forward? Yeah, and that's the reason why the CDC was very clear when they modified their metrics to make recommendations for indoor masking and said when the level of infection in the community gets low enough so that it's in what we call the green zone, yeah, you could do that with indoor. But if it changes and the cases go up, Mm -hmm. I, for one, and I know many people of my colleagues would do the same thing, would go back to masking indoors if we go with a high uptick of cases. That is Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President. Thank you very much for joining us again. My pleasure. When he was a global superstar, Prince was kind of a mystery. Back in 1970, he was just a kid. Are most of the kids in favor of the picketing? Yep. That young voice you hear is 11-year-old Prince Rogers Nelson. I think they should get a better education, too, because, um, and I think they should get some more money because they work, be working extra hours for us and all that stuff. That came from a local news story that year about a Minneapolis teacher strike. And after the story, that reel of tape languished in the archives of TV station WCCO for more than 50 years. Nobody suspected that kid, formerly known around the neighborhood as Skipper, would turn into Prince. It wasn't until this February that the tape was uncovered. But confirming it was Prince, that was going to take some work. It was exactly two weeks ago that I was made aware of it. WCCO reporter Jeff Wagner was shown the tape. He poured through yearbooks. He called old neighbors and Prince experts. And he showed the tape to childhood friend Terrence Jackson. That is Prince. (laughs) Standing right through the head on, right? Yeah, keep watching. Keep watching. That's Skipper. Oh, my God. Jackson's reaction has been the norm, says Jeff Wagner. It brought upon so much nostalgia for the deep fans, especially, like people saying, I don't know why I'm in tears watching this, but I am. And Wagner found that for Minneapolis residents, the tape turned a larger-than-life hero into someone just like them. You know, he was just a kid on the north side of Minneapolis at one point. He was just like all the other kids. Wagner says he reached out to Prince's estate, which acknowledged the find, but just like Prince when he was alive, it wouldn't say much more. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, hundreds of refugees from Ukraine are now camped along the U.S.-Mexico border after fleeing the war in hopes of gaining asylum here in the United States. On Wall Street, the Dow rose 0.40 percent today, 138 points to finish the week at 34,721. S&P and Nasdaq lost ground. S&P fell about a quarter of a percent to close at 4488 the Nasdaq gave up one and a third percent to settle at 13,711. Details coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. Red Sox and Yankees are tied at 4-4 in the ninth inning for the first game of the regular season. In the forecast, it's been a nice day today. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, falling to the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, look for scattered thunderstorms, partly sunny, gusty wind, highs nearing 60 for Sunday, partly sunny, slight chance of a shower in the afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. 59 degrees now in Boston at 421. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. We know that there are many people out there who specifically tune in to listen to All Things Considered in the afternoon, morning edition in the morning, on point in the morning and in the evening as well, because it's on twice during the day. We hope that you will choose the program that you appreciate. Maybe you appreciate everything you hear on WBUR. Make a pledge right now before we go back to All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins here with On Point host, Meghna Chakrabarty. Hi, Lisa. And, you know, we bring you news and information and stories and voices from around the world every single day. But Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering says that that monthly support we're asking for also uh, helps going towards supporting your community. We survive together. We thrive together. We rise and fall together. We grow together. We mourn together. We celebrate together. We live together in community. And in order to thrive, in order to find joy, In order to lead stable lives where the world doesn't catch us by surprise all the time and where we know what to do when it does, we need to understand each other. We need to have a window into our neighbors' lived stories as well as our own. We need to have a deep understanding of what we're facing together, what policy questions will challenge us all, how we vote side by side. At Radio Boston, At WBUR, we are committed to helping build that community through telling each other's stories, through listening to each other's stories, through helping with each other's stories. When we do that, we are stronger together. We thrive together. That takes sustained commitment. It takes sustained attention. Honestly, it takes sustained love for community that is lived in the way we report the news, in the way we find and tell stories. When you sustain us, you sustain our ability to help you live in community. Well, as Tiziana put it so eloquently, we're asking you for $5 a month to help do that. 
Just $5 a month. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Giving $5 a month or more if you can to WBOR provides much-needed funding for our local news, national news, international reporting, which is especially expensive. Your monthly support also puts up a wall against anybody who tries to silence independent voices such as ours in this country. Call the number now, 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. If you do it right now, your $5 contribution will get you a great WBUR tote bag, the newest version of our tote. And if you can make it $10 a month, you will also get the Eton FRX3 radio as a bonus gift. A really good deal. All for your support of WBUR for $10 a month. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And you know, with all the uncertainty in the world today, you can never actually be too prepared, right? We, we try to prepare you in terms of preparing your mind and your spirit and your sense of community through listening to the news and information at WBUR. But as Lisa said, for that $10 a month, that Eton FRX3 radio helps you prepare for say, more Mother Nature's type emergencies, hurricanes, or other disasters when you actually are going to need an all-purpose weather radio that also has a USB phone charger on it. So, so just when you need to charge your phone. doesn't even have to be a disaster. Could just be an ice storm in New England. <laughs> 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And we should say both of those uh, offers, the um, Eton Radio and the Tote Bag, are only available until 6 o'clock, so get your call in right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBU and thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data Aiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIKU.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Ukrainians fleeing the war in their country have begun arriving in the United States. Many are doing so by traveling to Mexico's northern border and asking U.S. immigration agents to let them in on humanitarian grounds. NPR's Adrian Florido traveled to Tijuana, Mexico, where thousands of Ukrainians have landed in just the past few days. So many Ukrainians have arrived in Tijuana this week that the city's government turned a sports complex into a makeshift shelter. Cots and roll-up mattresses everywhere. Yesterday, hundreds of people were waiting for their turn to take a shuttle to the border crossing with San Diego and ask to be let in. 1983. 1983. Your number is? 2 Irina Mereshko has been at the shelter for two days. Earlier this week, she flew from her home in Los Angeles to Warsaw, Poland, and then took a train into Ukraine, where she met her sister and her sister's 14-year-old son, Ivan. Her sister is staying to support Ukrainian troops, but she wanted her son to come to the U.S. until the war is over. We uh, told him it will be like a long summer vacation, break, break, <laughs> in California. As they said goodbye, everyone, including Ivan, understood that to be more of a hope. If be honest, it can be last goodbye between us. Yeah, you know. yeah it was a really difficult year. Mereshko decided to come through Mexico when she learned the easiest way to get Ivan into the U.S. was to show up at the border and request humanitarian admission for a year, newly available to Ukrainians. 
On their final flight into Tijuana, almost every other passenger was Ukrainian. Olya Krasnik is one of the volunteers running this shelter. She says the number of Ukrainians arriving at this border city has ballooned faster than anyone had expected. Six days ago, it was 350. In one day? In one day. And the last three days, we were right about 1,000. 1,000 people arriving in Tijuana airport every day? With Ukrainian passports, yeah, waiting to cross into the United States, yep. Krasnik is a real estate executive in Silicon Valley, but like many Ukrainian Americans, when she learned that Ukrainians were arriving in Tijuana, she dropped everything and came down to help. They found a growing tent city near the border, so they worked with Tijuana officials to set up this shelter and with immigration agents to take 50 people at a time to the border. But Ukrainians are still arriving much faster than agents can process them. And the, our grassroots volunteer effort just cannot scale to keep keep up. She says this effort needs help from a large nonprofit. For now, it's taking two to three days for a newly arrived Ukrainian to be led into the U.S. That's a lot faster than people from Latin American countries who've been waiting months to get in. Still, some Ukrainians have been traveling to other border cities hoping to get in faster. At the shelter, the mood is a mix of Mexican hospitality mingled with trays of Ukrainian food, along with the anxiety of war-rattled families. Alexei Ivkov drove from north of San Francisco to meet his 74-year-old mother, Tatiana. She spent weeks determined to ride the war out in a subway tunnel in the city of Kharkiv before her son was able to convince her to come to Tijuana. When he picked her up, he noticed the PTSD right away. Because we came out in the airport, it was some truck stopping, and it was just loud noise. And she was like, oh my god, what's going on? Even so, she's already thinking of her return home to Ukraine. As soon as it's going to quiet down a little bit, she will try to go back, basically. For now, she's cheerful, she says, excited for the big family party, her grandkids waiting for her in California. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Tijuana, Mexico. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden held a ceremony today celebrating the next associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Speaking in the White House Rose Garden, Judge Jackson said her confirmation as the first black woman to sit on the high court showed the progress of America. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. Jackson's nomination was confirmed by the Senate on Thursday with three Republicans voting in her favor. Jackson will replace longtime Justice Stephen Breyer, who's retiring from the bench in June. Civil rights groups say they plan to sue over new laws in Alabama that target transgender youth. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports Alabama is one of more than a dozen Republican-led states that have passed bills restricting LGBTQ rights. 
Republican Governor Kay Ivey signed into law bills that outlaw gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender youth and require public school students to use restrooms according to the gender on their birth certificate. In a statement, Ivey said she, quote, believes very strongly that if the good Lord made you a boy, you're a boy, and if he made you a girl, you're a girl. Civil rights groups say parents and doctors will sue over the health care law. It makes it a felony to prescribe medicines or perform surgery intended to alter a minor's gender or delay puberty. Courts have blocked a similar law in Arkansas. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Stocks closed mixed today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 137 points. The Nasdaq Composite down 186. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A company in Canton is receiving an unexpected thank you from a wounded Ukrainian who is fighting in the war against Russia. WBUR's Josie Guarino reports the business, E.M. Duggan, held a clothing drive for people in the war-torn country. 4,500 miles away, 21-year-old Maxim Hetmanchuk has a message from his hospital bed to those who contributed. Thank you. Hetmanchuk is wearing one of the donated T-shirts that were distributed at the hospital where he's recovering after being hit by shrapnel. Company employee Alex Matorny, originally from Kiev, says the fighter was moved by the words that came with the donation that referred to the clothing as a hug from those who care about you around the world. When he read the letter, he started crying. He was very appreciative and it was very emotional. The Ukrainian fighter vows to return to the battlefield as soon as he's able. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. The entire graduating class of a Roxbury school has been granted admission to a local trade college. Today, the Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology announced the admission offer to seniors at the Dearborn STEM Academy. The college will also guarantee admission to every future graduating class from the academy. The Cummings Institute is, of Technology is part, says it's part of an effort to make a technical career more accessible to young people and their families. The students can also nominate one relative for admission. The city of Lowell has a new tribute to former Congresswoman Nikki Songas. Today, the city council and other Lowell leaders dedicated a new footbridge that crosses a canal and connects two parts of a redeveloped mill district near downtown. The congresswoman helped secure funding for the district. And Massachusetts may have to stop sending its garbage to an nearby state. State senators in Maine have voted unanimously to close a loophole that allowed out-of-state trash to end up in Maine's only state-owned landfill. Operators say the landfill near Old Town was intended to accept only garbage from Maine, yet one-third of the site filled up with waste from elsewhere. Maine's House will vote on the matter next week. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. Baseball season starting off with a bang for the Red Sox and Yankees. Today's debut game in the Bronx. It's now the 10th inning with a game tied 4-4 in the forecast. Cool winds overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Weekend is a little bit mixed. Scattered thunderstorms, partly sunny skies and a gusty wind tomorrow, right about 60 degrees. And then for Sunday, slight chance of a shower Partly sunny skies for the most part in the mid-50s for high. 59 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. 
When I reported from eastern Ukraine in 2014, as certain areas were taken over by Russian-backed separatists, I saw Ukrainian television and news media taken off the air. The region was saturated with Russian propaganda. People were told that fascists in Kyiv had overturned the government and were coming for them next. I wanted to go back now, eight years later, to see where that propaganda led. What's happening now shows where disinformation can lead. It's very important that we are there to document what is happening on the ground. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness and share these stories. Empower this work with your donation to this station today. Here's how to give and thank you. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, the information you've been hearing from Eleanor Beardsley, her reports from Ukraine, are just the hallmark of what we're talking about when we say that we're giving you perspective and context. She covered um, uh, previous uh, wars in Ukraine as well, previous attacks by the Russian government. And now with this one, she is able to put things in perspective for us in a way that many other reporters can't. She speaks so eloquently about the importance of your contribution to what she can do in a war zone like Ukraine to stay safe. Here's the number to call to support that kind of reporting, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And when you think about it, we're asking for $5 a month on this $5 Friday. And it's quite remarkable because $5 a month from you who's listening now and the person who maybe, if you're in the car, say in the car next to you listening, and the person at home at the kitchen or a person listening on their phone as they're taking a, a hopefully a, a pleasant walk this evening, that the collective power of that $5 a month can make a huge difference. It's what make double. It, what's, it's what makes WBUR possible and move forward. So one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven is the number to call or WBUR.org to do your part. You know, we'd be happy with a $10 a month contribution, a $50 a month contribution if you can do that. But $5 a month, you might think, well, what's $5 a month going to get them? But the fact that we're even mentioning it tells you that every single phone call makes a difference. Every pledge makes a difference. $5 a month is is not nothing in the least. I mean, it takes, it takes a commitment to make a monthly contribution to any source. And we so appreciate when you can make a $5 a month commitment to WBUR. Whatever contribution, we are so grateful because this is what keeps us strong and independent and able to cover stories like Ukraine, for instance. And a little bit earlier in this half hour, we heard about Anthony Fauci talking about vaccines, coronavirus vaccines and boosters, and whether or not going to have to be taking them uh, every four months or so. And then a little bit of joy as well with that found tape of Prince from when he was like 11 years old. This is what we bring you across the board, and we do it every day, every hour of every day. So tell us what it's worth to you. If you can make a contribution of $5 a month, that would be terrific. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And that little story about a young prince in Minnesota, honestly, times are tough. We know the news is quite challenging uh, these days and especially today as we're witnessing what is happening in Ukraine. But, you know, still, it's okay to smile. It's okay to find and touch joy, even in the midst of the darkest moments, because we're here to 
be with you through the thick, the thin, the good, the bad, the whole entirety of what it means to be alive and living on this planet right now in this community. And it's right not all now. bad stuff. No, and it's not all bad stuff. And we should remind each other of that. And so WBOR strives to sort of reflect that whole experience of humanity and of this community. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Remember, if $5 a month works for you or $10 a month, that's terrific because that $5 a month gets you this great new tote bag. And, you know, it's not your mother's old tote bag or your grandma's tote bag, right, Lisa? Because it doesn't have, like, clunky headphones on it. It has earbuds. Earbuds, this little graphic of earbuds on it. So it's modern. (laughs) 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And the uh, the tote bag and the Eton radio, which are yours for a $10 a month gift, are only available until 6 o'clock tonight. So please make your phone call right now. Pledge your support. If you can do $10 a month, great. $5 a month, terrific. Get the tote bag for that. If you can make a pledge of $30 a month, we would appreciate that. Become a sustainer so that way we know we can count on your contribution when we need it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, the number is 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's a $5 Friday. For $5 a month, you get a terrific WBUR new tote bag. $10 a month gets you that Eton FRX3 Plus radio for whatever life throws at you. So again, the number is 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Going back to the news now with all things considered, we appreciate your support. If you've already given, thank you so much. If you haven't, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Lviv, Ukraine. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Grisly images of bodies covered with tarps have emerged from eastern Ukraine, where Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile has slammed into a train station. The station was packed with people trying to flee before fighting intensifies. Ukrainian officials have been imploring people to get out of the Donbass region, something that's been difficult in many areas in the country as humanitarian routes have repeatedly come under attack. The International Committee of the Red Cross in Ukraine has been trying to help get people to safety. Pascal Hunt heads the ICRC's delegation in the country and joins us now from Western Ukraine. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. These images that have come out of this attack on the train station, may I just ask you, when you first saw them, what thoughts went through your mind? Outrage, shock, heartbreaking. This image with kids uh, and shelling of civilians uh, is something that is difficult to to see, even when you are experienced in, in war situation. Yeah. Well, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told NPR this morning that he does anticipate heavier fighting in the weeks and and the months ahead as this war moves into a new phase. What is the Red Cross doing to prepare? We are basically, if not everywhere, but in a lot of places, 
we are really trying to be as close as possible uh, to the front line to be with the people. So we are ready for the worst, but we are still hoping for the best because the suffering of the population is just immense here. Well, I want to ask about these humanitarian corridors that have been fired upon, like in Mariupol in southern Ukraine, where these humanitarian routes have been attacked. The ICRC tried for five days to get in, and I understand could only come within about 12 miles of Mariupol. Now, I understand that you did help escort a convoy of hundreds of people who had already made it out on their own. Can you talk about why you think it has been such a struggle to negotiate ceasefires and why these ceasefires keep failing? Because these are these are complicated process. We are in the middle of an international armed conflict. We are in the middle of the fighting. From going to Zaporizhzhia to Mariupol, we have to pass many checkpoints. And you know, when the parties agree at the capital, it doesn't mean necessarily that the others are trickling down to the checkpoints. And sometimes the ceasefire is extremely fragile. So the progression towards Mariupol was extremely long. And just 12 miles before Mariupol, we then realized that the security conditions were not possible uh, because we could hear some fighting. So that's why we tried for many days, as we didn't get all the security guarantees, we decided to go back. We collected people along the road. We collected people in Berdyansk. We had buses with us, and the more we were moving towards uh, territory controlled by, by the Ukrainian government, we saw cars, private cars, joining the convoy because they, they saw the flag of the Red Cross. And we ended up uh, in Zaporizhzhia with seven buses, more than 150 cars, and 1,000 people. 1,000 people who managed to flee Mariupol and to, uh, to flee hell, basically. But this is not enough. Uh, we don't want that the suffering of Mariupol becomes the future of Ukraine. Well, let me ask, is the Red Cross having conversations with Russian contacts to facilitate access in and out of besieged areas? We are in daily contact with both the Ukrainians and the Russians. Do you feel that your communications with the Russians have been reliable? We present our humanitarian concern and we wait the Ukrainians and the Russians to agree on this safe passage in order that we can move safely with the population. The difficulties is that an agreement at capital level needs to be worked out in order that the soldiers at the checkpoint are aware of the agreement and do respect the orders. And this is really a complex uh, endeavor. Right. Well, what are the areas that you feel need the most right now? Where is the Red Cross focusing its efforts? Yeah, the needs are immense, mm-hmm. focusing in, in the hotspots. That's the work of the RCRC. The front lines, we are present in, uh, in the Donbass. You know, the needs are so big that we're trying to be a bit everywhere and we are scaling our response. Well, is the focus of the Red Cross, at least in the immediate term, determined more by need or by simply where your people can get in? It's not only uh, getting in and doing cross-line operation, because this is maybe the most difficult part of our job. Because of the mandate of the Red Cross, we are doing this job as neutral intermediary between the warring side. Uh, and this is an important role. But there are areas that are less affected by the hostilities or that were previously affected by the hostilities. And here we have access. 
north of Kiev, the main problem we had, we had was the heavy contamination of unexploded ordnance. Mm -hmm. This was dangerous for us, for the population. Bridges have been destroyed, roads uh, have been destroyed. So in, in terms of logistics, this is not easy to reach, but we're doing everything to, to, to reach this population and to provide them with assistance. Pascal Hunt is the head of the delegation at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Ukraine. Thank you very much for joining us today, and best of luck to you and your team. Thank you so much for receiving me. On the south lawn of the White House today, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson took stock of the history she just made. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. But we've made it. One day after her confirmation in the Senate, the justice-to-be paid tribute to the pathbreaking black Americans who she said did the heavy lifting that made this day possible. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. She said all Americans should take pride in this moment. It's especially sweet, though, for the black women who have fought for Judge Jackson since her nomination. We made phone calls, we sent emails, even traveled to Washington. We first met Petey Talley last month at a rally for Jackson on the steps of the Supreme Court. Yesterday, back in Toledo, Ohio, she was glued to the TV as she waited for the Senate confirmation. We heard the sound of glass breaking when finally that vote came through. Tally had followed Jackson's confirmation process through hours of grueling hearings and what she called egregious questioning from Republicans. You know, there's a saying that goes something like when you try it in the fire, you come out as pure gold. Uh, but the challenge is surviving the fire, and that's exactly what she did. Now she says she's ready to celebrate all the way until Judge Jackson is sworn in this summer. Two sisters, one left Ukraine five years ago, the other left after the Russian invasion. Their bid to reunite in the U.S. tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered. An exhibition of the works of Mexican photographer Graciela Iturbide runs through the end of May in Paris. The iconic photographer, who is now almost 80, first became known for her portraits of indigenous peoples. She later traveled outside of Mexico to photograph Chicano communities in Los Angeles and transgender people in India before changing her focus again. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley got the opportunity to sit down with Iturbide. Draped in an elegant black cape, Graciela Iturbide greets me with warm words and a twinkling, observant gaze. Born in 1942 in Mexico City, where she still lives today, this emblematic figure of Latin American photography says she happened upon her life's work quite accidentally. She had wanted to study literature and become a writer, she tells me through an interpreter. Yo quería estudiar literatura. 
Yo quería ser escritora. But uh, in my bourgeois family, it was just not possible at all for a woman to go to university in the 60s. So I felt very frustrated. Iturbide married young, but after her kids grew a little, she went back to night school to study cinema. Well-known photographer Manuel Alvarez Bravo was giving classes. Bravo had made a name for himself in the 20s and 30s, working with muralists Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. Iturbide says she got lucky and became his apprentice in the early 70s. He opened, uh, I would say, the wonders of the world uh, to my eyes, and uh, he gave me the opportunity to discover my country and then the rest of the world. When talking about being a successful photographer, Iturbide quotes another icon, Henri Cartier-Bresson. Cartier-Bresson. Henri Cartier-Bresson said, uh, and I had the uh, great luck of meeting him in Paris, he said that there was one decisive moment when you are a photographer, and it is the moment when you actually seize your camera and take the picture. Whatever the camera, success depends on the eye behind it, she says, and passion, dedication, and discipline. Personally, I have a very emotional relation to Graciela. That's Alexis Fabry, curator of the Cartier Foundation for Modern Art, which is hosting the exhibition. There's a word some people use in relation to her work that I think is not a bad word, is anthropoetry. Uh, that very subtle um, oscillation in her work between something that could be anthropological and something that is poetical. Fabry says this exhibit traces Iturbide's slow journey from people to abstraction uniting herself with nature, objects, and animals. Iturbide says her interests changed in the years, partly because drug wars made it difficult to travel to indigenous regions. Instead, she decided to focus on human beings' relationship with objects. Somos seres humanos, pero nos... I think we uh, are accompanied with um, gardens, mountains, objects, you know, and uh, stones. I mean, the stones were the first thing that actually arrived in a way after the Big Bang. And uh, I'm very interested in uh, everything that has to do with life, with everything that surrounds us. The retrospective at the Fondation Cartier brings together more than 200 of Iturbide's images from around the world, spanning her work from the 1970s to the present. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. Finding misinformation can be tricky. We question people in power. We want to hear from people in power, but we want to deliver their statements in context, surrounded by facts, which is what you deserve. It takes resources to get it right, and we can't do that without your support. Help us by giving to this station. Thanks.
We are eager to get your resources right now so we have you to rely on so we can cover stories like the one that you just heard uh, with the head of the delegation at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Ukraine talking about evacuating Ukrainians and bringing aid to the country. The story about the Mexican photographer Graciela Idrabidi, who has won international renown for portraits of indigenous and marginalized people, and for uh, stories about sports, including the fact Meghna Chakrabarty, I want you to hear this as well, that the Red Sox regular season debut with the Yankees is a nail-biter. The game is now in the 10th inning in the Bronx, and it's tied at 5-5. Oh, wow. Knowing what a huge Red Sox man you are. That means something, apparently. <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> That's right. Well, to all of you Red Sox fans out there, or at least WBUR fans, right now we're hoping to get your resources for us, your support for us, so we can cover all the stories that you hear on WBUR 24-7, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And speaking of 5-5, five, five, which the game is tied at, Magna? I'm supposed five to say Friday. $5 a month. Sorry, I'm just still enraptured by the fact that there's a tie game going on. Um, you, I see you thought I didn't appreciate the boys of summer, Lisa. Look at that baseball reference. I'm just throwing in there. Good. So impressive. <laughs> no, so speaking of fives, we are doing what we're calling $5 Fridays. And essentially, we're just asking you for $5 a month to help support the news, the information, the occasional moment of levity that you hear here at WBUR every single day. And, you know, I suppose you might be wondering like, why are public radio stations and WBUR in particular asking for these monthly contributions? Well, we're asking because your support, even at the 5 or $10 level, helps bring the stories that you know you need and also stories that we can't always predict or almost can never predict. So our CEO, Margaret Lowe, says this is where monthly giving plays an important role. The very definition of being a news organization is that there will be stories we can't predict, and we need to be there for our listeners right away to shed light on the most pressing issues of our time. And while the world is unpredictable, monthly giving allows us to predict or properly forecast our revenue, since we know how much money we can expect to have across the year and we can plan accordingly. We also know that people who give monthly, sustaining givers, generally stick with us because they don't have to think about making a donation. It's automatic and it's easy. And if we're going to continue to thrive, we do need more people to become monthly givers, sustaining members of WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, or you could go to WBUR.org and become one of those sustaining givers that gives us stability and longevity to bring you the news and information, predictable and not, every single day. Yeah, when you think about it, Magna, last time we were fundraising, which was the end of last year, um, we may not have mentioned Ukraine at all uh, because we didn't know it was going to happen. And now we are all in on Ukraine, of course, on uh, on uh, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson becoming the newest member of the U.S. Supreme Court on all the stories that we hear in the news, many of which we did not expect to happen. So you are the ones who provide us the resources. You reap the benefits of however strong we can be at WBR. So it's a really great investment if you can invest. $5 a month right now. We would be happy to give you the WBR tote bag as our thanks. It's a new tote bag with earbuds on the front, a picture of earbuds on the front. And if you can make it a $10 a month gift, you will also get the Eton FRX3 uh, radio as a bonus gift. It can be charged by solar, hand turbine, or DC power, so you're always prepared. It even has a USB phone charger. So please make your gift right
right now. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org to make that gift of $5 a month or $10 a month. Or if it's in your budget, more than that, $20, $50, $100 a month, whatever works for you because we put it all to work for you as soon as it comes in here. You hear it right now. You hear you, in the fundraising, maybe not, but in the stories and news and updates that Lisa brings you every single afternoon on All Things Considered. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call for those fives that we're asking for, Lisa. And speaking of fives, the Red Sox-Yankees game is still tied at 5-5, but it's now gone into the 11th inning. We'll be bringing you the latest and, of course, the latest news on everything that's happening out there. We have Marketplace at 6 o'clock on our 6.30, that is, on point at 7 o'clock, and then a full array of news and information ahead. So this is what you get whenever you listen to WBUR or go to WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Please make your contribution right now and know how grateful we are. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars, pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. From Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams, quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In Ukraine, officials say a Russian missile hit a train station packed with people trying to flee Russia's war in the country. At least 50 people are dead, dozens injured. The White House says it's yet another horrific atrocity by Russia against civilians. Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Where we are now is we're going to support efforts to investigate the, this attack as we document Russia's actions, hold them accountable, and we will continue to surge security assistance and weapons deliveries to help Ukraine defend their country. Ukraine's prosecutor general says around 4,000 civilians, mostly women and children, were in and around the station at the time of the strike. Meanwhile, Russia denies it ordered that missile strike. NPR's Becky Sullivan has more from Kyiv. The central train station in Kramatorsk has been packed in recent days, with civilians heeding the calls of local officials to evacuate the region, ahead of what's expected to be a major intensification of fighting in the coming days. Russia calls reports a Ukrainian provocation. Pavlo Kirilenko, head of the Donetsk Regional Military Administration, said today through an interpreter that the strike must have been deliberate because Russia has sophisticated surveillance tools. They clearly understood that this is a railway station, that this is a city, that there is a lot of people concentrated there. And they only do it to prevent people from leaving our oblast. Now the mayor of Kramatorsk says an emergency evacuation of all of the city's residents has begun. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Kiev. 
Jurors have acquitted two of the four defendants charged with conspiracy to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But they deadlocked on a verdict for two others. Michigan Radio's Vincent Duffy has more. The men were accused of planning to kidnap the governor because they were angry about masking mandates and other COVID restrictions. The verdicts against Adam Fox, Barry Croft Jr., Daniel Harris, and Brandon Caserta were read at the federal courthouse in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Harris and Caserta were both acquitted. The jurors could not agree on verdicts for Croft and Fox, resulting in a mistrial for them. Defense attorneys portrayed their clients as weekend warriors prone to wild talk who were often under the influence of marijuana and were tricked by the FBI undercover agents into agreeing to the kidnapping. Prosecutors, however, said the men talked about abducting Whitmer before the FBI sting began. For NPR News, I'm Vincent Duffy in Michigan. A man from North Carolina is the second member of the Proud Boys to plead guilty to conspiring with other members of the far-right extremist group to stop Congress from certifying the Electoral College vote for Joe Biden. 34-year-old Charles Donahoe pleaded guilty today to charges of conspiracy and assaulting federal officers. The role of extremist groups such as the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers has been the focus of the Justice Department's sprawling investigation of the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 137, NASDAQ down 186. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is extending an emergency order through the end of the year to help states, hospitals, and medical facilities fill open positions. Nursing students and recent nursing school graduates who are not yet licensed are being allowed to work immediately. The Massachusetts Nurses Association claims it is not safe to put inexperienced nurses into what it calls an unstable environment. A former Florida prep school administrator was sentenced today to four months in prison for his role in the college admissions scandal being prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. Mark Rydell pleaded guilty to taking college entrance exams in exchange for money. Also today, a former water polo coach at the University of Southern California, Jovan Vavik, was found guilty of taking bribes to help unqualified students attend school as recruits for his team. And a Norwood Middle School student who gave marijuana-laced edibles to classmates is facing discipline. An investigation shows the student brought in a chocolate bar laced with marijuana to school and shared it with several classmates. This is WBUR. It's 505. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. Red Sox and Yankees are tied at 5-5, going into the 11th inning in the Bronx. This the debut game for uh, the regular season. And in the forecast, lovely out there right now. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, falling to the mid-40s. Then for the weekend, could have some showers on Saturday, but mainly partly sunny skies, a gusty wind right about 60. For Sunday, partly sunny, the slight chance of an afternoon shower in the mid-50s for a high. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the A Lot to Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Ascent with seating for eight. CitysideSubaru.com. 
Back Bay Life Science Advisors, strategy consulting and investment banking services for global life science companies, bblsa.com. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up to the news from All Things Considered in just about three minutes. First, we want to tell you that to support stories, to bring you stories like the one we have coming up, where we're going to be hearing about residents and aid workers in a particular Ukrainian town surveying the destruction since Russian forces withdrew, stories like this are made possible by you. So, whatever you can afford to give right now, we hope you will, especially on a monthly basis. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we're just asking for $5 a month or $10 a month. And if you can give either of those amounts, again, it's just until 6 o'clock that the offer of a wonderful free gift, a WBR tote bag for that $5 a month contribution, oh, and the FRX 3 Plus Eton radio for emergencies and disasters. That's uh, for the $10 a month contribution. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. But those lovely little premiums there go away after 6 o'clock tonight. So in, what, 54 minutes, if I did that math right. Yep. So we're hoping that you will make the call right now. And really, we appreciate whatever you can pledge. We suggest certain amounts. If you can do a $75 a month pledge, we would appreciate that. $50 a month, $25 a month. In this case, uh, we're asking for $5 a month. And with the added benefit of a tote bag, our new tote bag, in fact, if you do $5 a month, if you can swing $10 a month, you will get the tote bag and the FRX3 Eton radio is a bonus gift. And as Magna said, those are only available for just about uh, 57 more minutes. So please make the phone call right now. We would so appreciate it because we have this intense focus on international news in particular right now. Uh, local news has tremendous relevance and importance as it never had. But we have so much news to cover from local, national, international, and news is the most expensive kind of programming there is. So we hope because you listen to it, you appreciate it, you'll support it right now. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at bostonstandardplumbing.com. And the Museum of Science, featuring the new exhibit, New England Climate Stories. Come and meet animals from local habitats that are adapting to climate change. Tickets at mos.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Lviv, Ukraine. All week, the world's attention has been focused on the death and destruction that's been discovered in the towns north of Kyiv after Russian forces withdrew. One of those towns, Borodyanka. We ride along with a humanitarian group delivering food and water to the town. It takes several hours to make what before the war would have been a relatively quick trip of about 40 miles. Destroyed bridges mean more vehicles crowd onto the few reliable routes. So right now we're in the small village of Dmitriovka and we're starting to see signs of fighting for the first time. Uh, We just drove past a completely burned out car. We're seeing homes that are totally destroyed. We are driving past a flattened tank. The top turret is just totally crushed and, and, and burned off, it looks like. Military checkpoints create long lines on the narrow roads. 
We just drove past a, a destroyed car that had the word children written in Russian, spray painted along the side door. Borodyanka is surrounded by forests. When we finally arrive, the small convoy pulls onto Centralna Street, Central Street, a main drag running east-west through the town. The workers immediately begin yelling to the first group of people we see, food, humanitarian assistance. Natasha Romanenko walks up to the van. She's trailed by a small dog. It's not our dog. She came from somewhere and we gave her shelter. She has also lived through many things with us here. She's lived through many, many things here. Now they're keeping her. Natasha is 56. She's wearing a red kerchief on her head. And when we say we're reporters, she launches into her story. We don't even have to ask that many questions. She takes us into her yard, where she points to a window in the house. You can see there are holes where they were shooting directly in our window while we were hiding there. Natasha has stuffed paper into the bullet holes to keep the cold out. The Russians arrived in Borodyanka in the early days of the war. Ukrainian forces were nearby, too. Natasha and her daughter's family spent a month hiding in a cramped, cold root cellar. What did we eat? Mostly potatoes. I had some spare oil, then I have a cow, so I had milk. And I went to my neighbor, I gave her some milk, she gave me some other things, some cheese. So this is how we survived. Our cow saved us. Natasha searches for the key to the cellar. As she fumbles for the lock, emotions wash over her. She says it's hard to talk about, to find the words. She unlocks the door and takes us downstairs. The cellar is mostly filled with crates of potatoes. At night, Natasha says they lay a carpet over the crates and try to sleep on top of that, keeping warm under all the blankets they had. The Russians left Borodyanka on March 31st. In the final days of the occupation, Natasha says a Russian soldier confronted her. He thought she was scouting Russian troops' locations and sharing them with the Ukrainian army. I was in my garden milking my cow, and the guy, he shouted to me. He said, hey, old woman, come here. And he started to accuse me that every time you go outside, somebody is shelling, somebody is destroying our columns. He was saying that it was me who did that. But I said, no, I never spent time outside, except in that moment when I needed to milk my cow. I'm not spending my time doing anything bad. She says he took her out to the middle of the road and pointed a gun at her head. He was threatening me. And what did I say to him? I didn't wish him anything bad. I said I had just one wish, that he would see my face for the rest of his days, so he would never forget what he's done here. The soldier spoke to someone else on the radio. Then, Natasha says, he let her go. The aid workers head west down Central Street to the middle of the town. We break away from the convoy to look around. We're standing in the middle of Borodyanka, and it's, it's utter devastation everywhere you look. There's an apartment building in front of us that is, that is blackened from, from flames. The middle of it is completely collapsed from bombs. We turn the other direction, the storefronts, all of the windows are shattered. Uh, there's, there's not much left in the stores at all. Many of the roofs are collapsed. There are burned vehicles in the streets. Most of the power lines are down and frayed on the ground. And there's just a steady stream of heavy machinery and police and humanitarian aid 
and press, slowly driving around the debris through the town. Across from the destroyed apartment building, there's a small park with a monument in the middle. On the top, a giant bust of Taras Shevchenko, the famous Ukrainian poet. Bullet holes pierce his forehead. The tall pillar the bus rests on is cracked and crumbling from all the shrapnel. Three policemen are holding a ladder. Another man stands nearby, ready to climb to the top. Yaroslav Halubchik is an artist from Kyiv. He's come here to help with an ad hoc art project, an instant memorial of sorts. We're calling this the healing of Shevchenko. Yaroslav steps up the ladder and starts to wrap a big gauze bandage around the giant head. As he does that, a man in a Ukrainian military uniform comes up and starts asking him what he's doing. It's like performance art, Yaroslav explains. The soldier seems satisfied. Turns out he was worried they were repairing it. In this case, it is vital that we keep this monument as it is right now. It shouldn't be touched. He says it's especially important because of who Shevchenko was. This is very symbolic because we all know that Shevchenko and other Ukrainian artists we're always enemies of Russia. I really hope that people will rebuild everything here as it was, but we should keep this as it is now. A reminder, the soldier says. We ask his name. He's Yevgen Neshuk, the former Ukrainian minister of culture. He's in the military now, based nearby. We keep making our way west down Central Street. Building after building has collapsed from the bombardment of tank and rocket fire. In the nearby town of Bucha, bodies were found in the street. Here, with so many collapsed structures, the worry is that the bodies are still trapped underneath. Cranes carefully pick up debris as recovery teams look for remains. There's a playground in front of one of the buildings. A woman is sitting there on a bench next to a slide, watching them work. Her name is Ludmila Boyko. My sister and her son lived here. This is what's left of them. A pile of old notebooks. His mother kept his old notebooks from school. Ludmilla found them, scattered among the rubble of the apartment building. That and some pictures, she says, are the only things she's found. Ludmilla's sister, Elena Venenko, was 56. Her nephew, Yuri, was 24. Ludmilla says he had just graduated from college. They'd left their apartment and sought shelter. But on March 1st, during a break in the shelling and bombing, Elena and Yuri went back. Ludmilla says they talked on the phone, and Elena told her they'd been able to shower and eat some food. An hour and a half later, Russian forces destroyed the building. Our friends were trying to help us, but for four days, it was a huge fire here. And so first, they were trying to fight the fire. They didn't have a chance to do excavations right away. When the fire stopped burning, people tried to look for survivors. Then shelling began again, and they had to flee. After that, she says Russian forces were posted here, and nobody could get near the building. Searching couldn't resume until a month after the attack. So you're just sitting here and waiting and watching? Yeah, I just want to see how they discover all of the bodies that they assume should be there. And then probably I would like to do something like with DNA testing, because I want to know for sure what happened. I was so close with them that 
I don't even know how should I live now? How should I live in this place? Then, amid the devastation, a surprising human moment. Ludmilla is telling us about Board Yonka's long-running exchange program with a town in Wisconsin. I tell her one of our producers who's standing nearby, Kat Monsdor, is from there. Turns out, Ludmilla knows Kat's neighbors. She's been to her street. Mother Casey, three daughter. Yeah. Very nice. Kathy. Yes. Wow. They hug, and Ludmilla beams. It's the first time in all these days that I can say that I am happy. But before long, our minds turn back to what's in front of us, a children's playground surrounded by destruction. A crane slowly removing rubble from a collapsed building. Soon the recovery team will discover a woman's body. Ludmilla will climb up the pile of rubble to look. The body will be removed and covered and placed next to the three others found earlier that day. That's what we saw in just one day on one street of one town in Ukraine. That is our co-host, Scott Detrow. He's been reporting from Ukraine all week, along with producers Noah Caldwell and Kat Lonsdorf. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR checking business news. The Dow rose 0.40% today, 138 points to finish the week at 34,721. S&P and Nasdaq lost ground. The S&P fell about a quarter of a percent to close at 44.88. The Nasdaq gave up one and a third percent to settle at 13,711. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30 tonight. In the forecast, look for a nice evening ahead, dry and then partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-40s. For the weekend, some thunderstorms possible tomorrow, but mainly partly sunny skies. Should be breezy with highs near 60 degrees. And then on Sunday, partly sunny, the slight chance of a shower in the afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. This is 90.9 WBUR, 58 degrees at 521. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Spring is a time for growth. Gardeners plant seeds, buds bloom, and we look forward to colorful days ahead. When you donate, you help this station grow and serve your community. Here's how to give. By calling 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org. We are hoping that uh, the story that you just heard from Scott Detrow, uh, which was an incredible story, as he said, of 
of one town, one street, one day in a town in Ukraine. An amazing story. If you didn't get to hear all of it, you might want to listen once again. But that's a kind of, of news information that you get from WBUR that we hope you think is worth your contribution right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point host Magna Chakrabarty. That story from Scott Detstro, excuse me, <clears throat> it was riveting. Uh, and this is the most fundamental thing that great reporting does. It takes you there, even if it's the midst of a devastated city in Ukraine. As Scott said, as you as you pointed out, one street in one city. And I felt like I was standing right there next to Ludmila, the woman they talked to at the end, and even experiencing that human connection through hearing her voice and the whole gamut of emotions and experiences that she had. Nothing else can do that. That's what you get. That's why you listen to this station, to be transported to both beautiful and tragic places. WBOR takes you there, and we hope that's worth $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you can give to bring the world closer to you every single day. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. And as Megna mentioned, $5 a month right now, we're focusing on a $5 a month gift because you can get with your contribution a great new tote bag that uh, that you haven't seen before. It's a beautiful one with uh, design of, uh, of uh, air, earbuds on the outside. And this is yours for a gift of $5 a month. If you can bump that up to 10 a month for today only. In fact, only for a little over the next half hour, you will also get an Eton FRX3 radio as a bonus gift. That's all for $10 a month. If you can make that contribution, we would so appreciate it. We appreciate whatever you can give to WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And again, remember, we only have about 35 minutes where you get those wonderful little bonuses, that tote bag oh, and or the uh, Eton FRX 3 Plus radio. Let me be precise about this here. For $5 a month, a contribution of $5 a month, you get the tote bag. For $10 a month, you get the tote bag and the radio. So you can carry your supplies and be informed, even in the midst of whatever life throws at you. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And to be realistic, for nothing you can get WBUR because we don't send you a bill. What we do is come to you a couple times a year and ask you to voluntarily please tell us what you think WBUR is worth to you. You decide and you put a dollar amount on that. We certainly hope you will because that is how we're sustained with your contribution. We're not here if you're not there for us supporting us. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. Can you swing $5 a month, $10 a month, $15 a month? Whatever you can do, we appreciate. 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org. It's 525. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. 
indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. The NBA playoffs start next week with the play-in tournament to decide which teams get the last slots starting in just a few days. Now, basketball fans have a lot to look forward to this year, but sadly, not fans of the Los Angeles Lakers. This traditional powerhouse team had a pretty dismal year, so the Lakers will be watching the tournament from their living rooms. Sorry, guys. For more on the playoffs, let's bring in Maitri Anantharaman. She covers pro basketball for the website Defector. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us again. All right, so let's first talk about the play-in tournament. What team do you think will come out of that with a slot in the playoffs? Yeah, so it used to be that the top eight teams from from each conference were were guaranteed to to play a playoff series. And last year, the NBA shook things up with that play-in tournament. So the, Uh the seven, eight, nine, and 10 seeds and each conference are actually competing for those final two spots. Um, right. And this year, there are a couple, uh, I would say, uh, sleeper candidates, teams that are, are probably better than their seeds. I'd say uh, the Brooklyn Nets look like a, a pretty good team in the in the Eastern Conference. They they had to deal with a lot of injuries, but they've got you know two absolute superstars in Kevin Durant and and Kyrie Irving, and and I think they'll they'll probably find a way into the playoffs. And then in the West, I think the Clippers seem like an interesting bet. Wait, so an LA team does have a shot? Yeah, the Clippers for most of the season were missing Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, who have been out with injuries. But Paul George is back now, looks pretty good. It's always fun when you have have guys coming back for the postseason because they can you go on these little runs and surprise people and, yeah. and be these dark horses. Nice. Okay. Well, looking ahead to the actual playoffs, which team should we be keeping an eye on? Because I I hear the Phoenix Suns have been pretty dominant in the regular season. Is that right? Absolutely. I Uh, think some people, myself included, wondered whether last year's final series we had between the Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks was some kind of fluke. But, But both of those teams have followed up those playoff runs with just phenomenal regular seasons. The Suns and Bucks have looked better to me this year than they did last year. And so I can absolutely see a world where we get that rematch in the finals. And I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but which team do you think is going to have an early exit from the playoffs? Okay, I am going to put you on the spot. Give me a guess. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you asked any basketball fan that question, they would immediately say the Utah Jazz, who have developed Mm -hmm. the dreaded pro sports reputation of the team that does okay in the regular season, but can't hack it come playoff time. It seems like there's some strife in the locker room. The head coach of the Jazz recently had to come out and deny some rumors that the two stars of the team don't like each other. He, he said, I'm, I'm not even making this up. He, he said to, to prove his point that they do like each other. He said, sometimes they sit at the same table when they eat. <laughs> Just like grownups. That's yes. great. All right, my three, I have to go back to LA because it is my town. What is up with my Lakers not making the playoffs? Like, is it weird that they're not in the playoffs this year? It is weird. I think they won a championship in 2020. They had a disappointing year last year. And I think this year they were coming into it, hoping they could prove that last year was just a fluke. 
but it was from beginning to end miserable. Just a couple months ago, it looked like the big indignity for the Lakers would be that they'd have to play in the play-on round again, but things just kept getting worse, and mm. they they fell out of even play-in contention altogether. <laughs> I guess LA will just have to place its hopes and dreams in the Clippers for now. Absolutely. That is Maitri Anantha Raman. She covers pro basketball for Defector. Thank you so much. Thanks. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alzheimer's Association, helping those living with Alzheimer's or dementia and their caregivers. 24-7 helpline at 800-272-3900. And Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. At least 50 people are dead after a missile hit a train station today where thousands of Ukrainian refugees were trying to flee the Russian invasion. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says all signs indicate that Russia was behind the attack. We find unconvincing Russian claims that they weren't involved, particularly when the ministry actually announced it, uh, and then when they saw reports of civilian casualties, decide to unannounce it. Uh, so our assessment is that uh, th this was a Russian strike. Kirby added that the missile strike is just a piece of Russian brutality in the prosecution of the war and their carelessness for trying to avoid civilian harm. The Justice Department earlier this week disrupted a Russian military cyber operation. Now the private sector is taking action. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports on a plan from Microsoft to prevent some Russian cyber attacks in Ukraine, as well as the United States. Microsoft is working with U.S. courts to take some Russian military cyber operations offline. In this case, Microsoft witnessed a Russian cyber actor called Strontium using specific internet domains to launch digital attacks against Ukrainian targets. The company asked a court for permission, then seized those domains to prevent their misuse. The Russian group, according to Microsoft, was targeting Ukrainian organizations, but also think tanks and government agencies in the United States and Europe to hack into their systems and steal information. Over time, Microsoft has seized over 100 domains used by Russian military intelligence. According to the company, this is just a small part of Russia's malicious cyber activity. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 137 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The levels of the COVID-19 virus in the wastewater in eastern Mass being monitored by the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority are edging upward. Dr. David Hamer is an infectious disease expert from BU's School of Public Health. He thinks that based on those levels, confirmed cases of COVID will continue to rise for the next few weeks. A confluence of factors that includes, you know, increased interactions, decreased mask use, 
people that have not been exposed to Omicron already and probably waning immunity from the boosters all contribute to cause a gradual wave. Hamer says he does not think we'll see a major spike as we did with the Omicron variant. Food banks in Massachusetts will begin to distribute free COVID tests along with meals and groceries. Governor Charlie Baker announced today that eight organizations will receive over $1 million at, or $1 million, that is, at-home rapid antigen tests to give away. It's part of the effort to reach low-income residents who've had difficulty getting those tests. The Baker administration also announced it's expanding its effort to vaccinate more people of color, more than four $4 million will go to our organization serving communities hardest hit by the pandemic. Previously, the state invested $51 million toward vaccine equity. And this weekend, the city of Lowell is celebrating its native son, author Jack Kerouac, with a two-day festival. The town and the city festival, named after one of his first books, includes music performances and art displays inspired by Kerouac. Organizer Chris Porter says he thinks Kerouac would approve of the event. He loved people, and I think he'd appreciate it that he was to some degree a spearhead in this. So I think I think he'd dig it, man. The festival is typically held in the fall. It was canceled for the past two years because of the pandemic. Red Sox and Yankees game ended in New York with a Sox loss today, but Boston did give it a good shot. Game was tied 4-4, went into extra innings. Xander Bogarts drove in the go-ahead run in the 10th inning to make it 5-4. Yankees responded in the bottom of the 10th to tie it 5-5. This stalemate continued in the bottom of the 11th inning, and that's when the Yankees' Josh Donaldson drove in the game-winning run on a single final score, 6-5 Yankees. Tonight, the Bruins are in Tampa Bay for a 7 o'clock matchup with the Lightning. In the forecast, no lightning in our forecast, maybe just a few thunderstorms tomorrow, overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures just in the 40s, and then for tomorrow, some scattered thunderstorms, partly sunny skies, gusty winds, highs about 60. Sunday, some sunshine, some clouds, maybe a shower in the afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And EF Gap Year an international gap program that helps students see the world, discover their passions, and gain important life skills. More at efgapyear.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. A controversial natural gas and diesel-fired power plant is being built in Peabody. It's known as a peaker plant. It's meant to kick into gear and generate electricity only during times of peak electricity demand. The plant is slated to be up and running next year, but it faces strong local opposition, and it goes against what international climate experts say needs to happen in order to limit global warming. WBR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser joins us to explain. Miriam, tell us about the plant, who is behind it, and where it's supposed to go in Peabody. The 55-megawatt plant in Peabody is slated to be built on a small plot of land near two existing natural gas peaker plants. The immediate area is fairly industrial, but it's pretty close to several neighborhoods, including environmental justice communities. And the group behind it is called MWIC, which stands for the Massachusetts Municipal Wholesale Electric Company. And this organization represents municipal utilities, which provide power for communities that don't get power from the bigger investor-owned companies like Eversource and National Grid. 
So in the case of this project, Emwick is representing about a dozen cities and towns that will pay for the plant and use its on-call power when it's turned on. So do we have any idea how often the plant will actually run and, and what its effect on the climate is going to be? That is hard to predict, but the utility group estimates that the plant will run about 239 hours a year. And at that rate, it would release about 7,000 tons of carbon a year. That's about the equivalent of adding 1,300 cars to the road in Massachusetts mm-hmm. annually. We should also remember that burning fossil fuels releases other harmful pollutants into the air, but it is worth mentioning that this plant will be cleaner than the vast majority of peaker plants in New England. So this utilities group is saying the plant is needed. What reasons is it giving? Yeah, so I couldn't get anyone behind the project to talk to me for this story, but in documents and at a public meeting last summer, the CEO of Emwick, which is the wholesale electric company, gave several reasons. The first was financial. He said that it would be cheaper for ratepayers if they built the plant than if they bought the on-call energy they need from the free market. The second was about convenience. So since there are already two plants on the Peabody site, this new one can take advantage of infrastructure, like gas pipelines that already exist. The utilities also say that they need the plant for reliability. And this is a little complicated, but in short, Northeast Massachusetts doesn't have a lot of transmission lines coming in. So if there was a big spike in power demand, having a peaker plant in the area could potentially help prevent brownouts. And are there a lot of brownouts in Northeastern Mass to begin with? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. And so this isn't necessarily a huge concern right now, but Emwick says it could be in the future. And so they want to hedge against that. And finally, project supporters say it might actually be a net benefit to the environment to build this peaker plant. Here's Emwick CEO Ronald DeCurzio at a public meeting last year. Being that this is going to be the latest and greatest technology, it will be in all likelihood displacing resources that emit higher carbon in the air. And Lisa, I just want to note that project opponents push back on all four of these arguments. And how about the opponents themselves? Who are they and and what are their arguments against the plant? Yeah, so it's a a pretty broad coalition of North Shore residents, environmental groups, and politicians, and they're opposed for reasons having to do with environmental justice, public health, transparency, and of course, climate change. Susan Smoller is a Peabody resident and founder of the activist group Breathe Clean North Shore. To me, the bottom line is it's crazy. It's insane to be investing in fossil fuel, brand new fossil fuel in 2022. Smoller also says that one of the reasons we're seeing a lot of opposition now, you know, six or seven years after the plant was first proposed, is that people didn't know about this project until recently. The Municipal Utilities Organization did what it was legally supposed to do to notify the state and the public about the plan, but a lot of people say that it wasn't enough. And the proposed plant is technically called Project 2015A, So even when the group talked about it at its meetings, people glancing at the agenda beforehand wouldn't know that they were talking about building a natural gas plant. Um, So how about opponents uh, offering alternatives? Are there any? There are basically two that have been suggested. The first is batteries. So environmentalists point to a study that found the utilities could meet their energy needs with big batteries. But the project backers say that they looked at batteries and concluded that the array that they would need wouldn't fit on the site and that even if it did, it wouldn't be cost-effective. 
Another study found that it would be cheaper to buy the power on the free market than to build the plant. But again, the utilities group say it would not be cost effective in the long run. Where does the project stand now in terms of permits and approval? It is fully permitted. So unless something radical happens to put it on pause, construction should begin soon and it should be up and running by next summer. So do opponents have any options at all? Yeah, they're, they're pushing the state energy and environmental affairs secretary, Kathleen Theoherides, to tell MWIC that it needs to do a full environmental review of the project. And, you know, this project was actually exempt from this back in 2016 because of its size, because it's relatively small. And they're also asking Governor Charlie Baker to order what's called a comprehensive health impact study. So this would look at how the plant could affect air and water quality and what it might mean for public health. Thank you for telling us the story, WBR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. Back to the news in just a couple of minutes. We are taking a little bit of time right now to ask you to reflect on the stories that you've been hearing, including the story with Miriam Wasser about the controversy behind a natural gas and diesel-fired power plant being built in Peabody. A story earlier, fantastic story out of Ukraine on what it's like on one battered street in a Ukrainian town where Russian troops have now pulled out and people are surveying the damage. And you heard about the NBA playoffs. What of this is not to like. And we know that you like it. Some of you love it, in fact, because you listen to it. We hope you will support it right now. Every community needs strong local journalism, and our strength comes from you, our listeners. So please make your contribution right now before we go back to the news. If you can swing a $5 a month contribution, we would so appreciate that. $10 a month, if you can do $100 a month, please make the call right now before we go back to the news. Listen, uh, you listen to WBR, so you we hope will be supporting us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point host Magna Chakrabarty. And we truly do hope you'll choose to support us because we can't just send you a bill in the mail and (laughs) and guarantee that, that you'll pay it. There is no bill here to you, our listeners. It's all by volunteer effort, by your choice to support WBUR. It's an affirmative act. It's an affirmative action, for lack of a better term, um, rather than one that's punitive because you owe us something. You don't owe us anything except what you think the news is worth to you. And when we say listener support is at the heart of BUR, we really mean it because it is the largest share of the funding for everything you get from us. So here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe, who talks about why that support in particular is so vital today. Our information will always be free. You will never hit a paywall that sends you packing. And trustworthy information should not only be for those who can afford it. This is a vital resource, a public good that must be preserved. And that's not guaranteed. One of the great things about listener support is that people give not because they have to, but because they want this kind of journalism to to not just survive, but to thrive. And because they believe in the value of our coverage and want to support work that strengthens all of us, that makes Boston and this region an even better place to call home. 1-800-909-9287 is the the number to call or WBUR.org. And again, Lisa, how many minutes do we have left? Maybe 15, 15 16 for this special deal that we've got going on, what we're calling $5 Fridays, right? Absolutely. And so with this deal, and it is a good deal, $5 will get you the beautiful new tote bag 
uh, the WBUR has just to prove that you can never have enough tote bags. This one is gorgeous. It's uh, got uh, reinforced steams, steams, seams that are double stitched for durability. It's a black canvas bag designed with uh, yellow and white on the front of it. And if you want to bump that up to a $10 a month contribution, you will get, in addition to the tote bag, the Eton FRX3 radio. This is a fantastic radio, good for emergencies, disasters, and even when you need to charge up your phone, it has a USB charger. So please make the call right now. That's a special deal that's only good until 6 o'clock tonight, so less than 15 minutes now to go. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Lviv, Ukraine. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Just before midnight on Monday, Peru's president, Pedro Castillo, announced a 24-hour curfew in the capital city of Lima. The order was meant to tamp down nationwide protests that started over the rising prices of fuel, food, and fertilizer. But the scope of the government's response here came as a bit of a surprise. After widespread discontent, Castillo backtracked on his curfew order within a day, and the protests still continue. For more, we go now to Jacqueline Fox, who reports for the newspaper El País in Peru. Welcome. Thank you. So can you tell us, Jacqueline, what do the protests look like today? Today is not as complicated as in the previous days, but we don't know uh, certainly what is going to happen in the next days because the most important demands still are there. There have not been so many solutions. Today we are in the day 12 of the protests in some cities, and on Saturday there is going to be another protest in, in Lima. Well, I'm curious, when President Castillo first imposed this curfew, which has now been rescinded, how did people react to that response? Well, it was only in Lima and in the main port of the country, in Callao, and a lot of people respected it, but a lot of people didn't want to stay at their homes. So thousands of persons that are looking for the resignation of Castillo went downtown Lima, to protest. Yesterday there was another rally that, did, that wasn't asking for the resignation of the president. They were asking the president to fulfill their, their promises that he made when he was candidate. And if he does not fulfill their uh, campaign promises, then he must quit. These protests began because of rising prices for fuel and for food, these prices that have been rising for quite some time now and have been exacerbated in part by Russia's war in Ukraine. Can you tell us more about how hard this has made life for people in Peru, these rising prices? Yeah, I think it's important to remember some background about who supported the victory of Pedro Castillo. 
he worked with a very important support of uh, peasant farmers and independent drivers. In Peru, we, we have a very chaotic system of transportation. So there are thousands of drivers who work on their own. And Pedro Castillo offered these very big groups that he was going to govern for a better living of them. So this has been worsening since August because of the rise of the inflation. Right. And it got worse in the two previous months because of the higher price of fertilizers. Well, does Castillo still have powerful supporters? Like, like how are they explaining this administration's failures so far? No, I will say that he has some very important supporters. These rallies that were held in several cities yesterday, they were organized by very important unions of peasants and workers. These are the last supporters he, he still have. So they were like, remember that we vote for you, so you have to fulfill what you promised. Right. If not, you will have to go. That is Jacqueline Fox. Her reporting from Peru appears in the newspaper El País. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. French voters go to the polls this weekend to decide whether to give President Emmanuel Macron a second term. Macron is in the lead, but far-right leader Marine Le Pen is right behind and has rapidly closed the gap. Ten other candidates trail them. Le Pen supporters say their candidate is different this time around and has redefined herself. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley attended a Le Pen rally in the south of France and sends us this report. A better prepared, poised, and more moderate Marine Le Pen took the stage in front of thousands of supporters in Perpignan Thursday night. It's Le Pen's second attempt at the presidency. Last time, she lost handily to Macron. This time, she sounds different. Gone are her fearful messages on immigration and the European Union. Le Pen this time around is about unity and inclusion. Français de toutes origines. French people of all origins and religions, from the continent to the islands, I salute you respectfully and call on you. Your country needs you. Analysts say Le Pen has managed to detoxify the party started by her father 50 years ago. She even changed the name. The National Front became the National Rally. A look at this crowd is further proof. There are white-collar executives, young people, women... 46-year-old Thierry Sagalos runs a startup. He says he used to vote traditional right, but considers candidate Valérie Pécresse too weak. He says Le Pen has gained credibility with mainstream conservative voters. I support Le Pen. She's solid. She's not excessive or radical in her language. There is no point in dividing the French. The point is to make a good project, and she does not exclude people. Zagalos calls Le Pen a positive populist. Voters here bristle if they're referred to as far right. 
Le Pen also looks more moderate this time around, thanks to candidate Eric Zemmour. Zemmour, a former right-wing TV pundit, regularly rages about immigration and Islam. While he surged in December and January, Zemmour's message appears to have lost steam, especially after the war in Ukraine began. His previous support of President Vladimir Putin hurt him further. At the Perpignan rally, retiree Patrick Fromont says Zemmour sounds a lot like Le Pen's more extreme father. Marine Le Pen has modernized for the 21st century, he says. She's a very poised, calm woman now. She's really hit her stride. She doesn't get ruffled. She doesn't get angry anymore. Le Pen regularly evokes Macron in her rallies, his arrogance, his support of the rich and the elites, his supposed disrespect of the little guy. She contrasts that with what she says is her support of French workers, the teacher, the nurse, the farmer. That's what drew local wine grower Ludovic Servant to Le Pen. He waves a Le Pen flag as her fleet of campaign buses pulls away after the rally. Servant, originally from the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe, says Macron lacked respect for the little people and Le Pen wants to take care of them. I like Marine Le Pen. Because she's the only one who's very attentive to those who live in rural areas. Because she is sensitive, she thinks about what kinds of problems people in the countryside in agriculture face. Throughout this campaign, Le Pen has focused on economics and bread and butter issues. It seems to be paying off as her numbers are surging. She is only three points behind Emmanuel Macron in the latest polls. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Perpignan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts. Championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. My name is Layla Falden, and I'm one of the hosts of Morning Edition and the Up First podcast. I started as an overnight newspaper reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, found myself on a plane to Baghdad a year later covering the impact of a U.S. invasion, occupation, and war in that country, then traveled across the Middle East and North Africa with short trips into Europe sometimes, and then back to the United States covering this country, its divisions, the things that unite and divide people. I get the privilege and honor of going into people's homes, of listening to people's stories. That's a gift. I think it's incredibly important to keep those in power accountable, but also to spend as much time speaking to those impacted by the policy decisions. That, for me, is what I bring to the host chair. I'm Leila Faldin. Support this NPR station today. Here's how to give. You can give right now at this number, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. Go online right now because we just have four minutes left for a special offer on the table right now for those of you who can give $5 a month. Megna? And that offer is... 
you get a tote bag. And in all seriousness, this is a new WBUR tote bag. It's lovely. It's got the WBUR logo and um, a very elaborate set of um, an image of an elaborate set of um, uh, earbuds, if I could put it that way. And that's for just $5 a month. But you've got to call within the next three minutes. And if $10 a month is a possibility for you, you get the WBUR tote bag and the terrific Eton FRX3 radio that uh, will keep you prepared for emergencies and disasters disasters, keep you uh, plugged into the information that you need, but you wouldn't even need a plug, right? It's just solar powered or hand turbine powered or DC powered if you still have power running through your home. But 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Just three minutes now, and that's when these are off the table. We can offer them no longer. So again, for your pledge of $5 a month right now, you get the WBUR tote bag, brand new tote bag, in fact. And if you can pump it up to $10 a month, you get the tote bag and the Eton radio. $5 a month is what we're suggesting. If you would like to give more than that, we would be happy to take it off your hands because we know that uh, that you're aware of just how much news costs to bring you the news, especially when there are stories that require so many resources, such as what's happening in Ukraine right now. This is something we are committed to bringing you, committed to, as you heard Leila Fadel say at the end, at the beginning of this break, the voices on the ground of people who are affected by policies, affected by policies, in this case, uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine, and the way the rest of the world is responding to it. You're hearing from the people who are affected. And that is a lot more difficult to get to put together into a story than it is to have just have opinion on that masquerades very often as journalism. So because we're bringing you the real thing, accountable, independent news, we hope you will pay for it right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm going to demonstrate accountability right now. I'm going to hold myself to account. I said DC power if you plug into your home. I'm not entirely sure that's right. Someone let me know. I think it's AC power in your home. So just ignore me about... We should cue some music. But but the point is, is that for $5 a month or $10 a month, if you can, if you call in the next two minutes, you'll also get these terrific little gifts. The WBR tote bag for $5 a month. And for $10 a month, you get the tote bag and the Eton FRX3 radio. But you have 90 seconds to make that call for these wonderful gifts. 1-800-909-9287 or do it at WBUR.org. And think of the stories that you've been hearing about how far-right leader Marine Le Pen is closing the gap in the polls in France for the presidential election versus incumbent Emmanuel Macron. The election is this weekend. You heard about protests over inflation in Peru and how the president there is reacting, or some would say overreacting to them. You're going to be hearing from Anthony Fauci coming up talking about boosters and whether or not we're going to need boosters every couple of months. And of course, the news of the day from Ukraine. All of this uh, comes at a cost to us. We know that you are edified by it. You listen to it. You appreciate it. So right now, put your money behind it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And your money goes to support the brilliant producers that we have on the other side of the glass who make people like me sound smart. I've just been assured it's AC power in your homes. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Do it now. $5 a month or $10 a month. You get these wonderful gifts, but you got to call now. 800-909-9287. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden and Vice President Harris celebrated the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court with a ceremony at the White House. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. President Biden spoke of the, quote, vile, baseless accusations he said Jackson faced during her Senate confirmation hearing and praised her for the poise, patience and constraint she showed in the face of it. We'll look back, he said, and see this as a real moment of change. Judge Jackson then spoke. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. We've made it, she repeated, all of us. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Three Starbucks stores in Ithaca, New York, have voted to unionize. There are now unions at 16 Starbucks stores, with more elections underway or coming soon. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. The votes in the college town were landslides for the union. The results from a separate Starbucks union election in Overland Park, Kansas, remain on hold. There, the tally is six to one in favor of a union, but there are seven contested ballots that need to be resolved. The workers are calling for higher wages, more consistency in their schedules, and for Starbucks to supplement their tips, among other demands. Meanwhile, Starbucks interim CEO Howard Schultz has appealed to workers not to go the union route, saying the company has always provided provided for its workers and, quote, does not need someone between us and our people. Andrea Shu, NPR News. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says it's banning actor Will Smith for 10 years following his behavior at this year's Oscars. And here's Mandalito Barco has more. The Academy says Best Actor winner Will Smith will not be able to participate in any of its events virtually or in person, at least until the year 2032. During the Oscars ceremony, he famously walked on stage to slap comedian Chris Rock after he told a joke about Smith's wife's hair. By the end of the week, Smith apologized to Rock and resigned from the Academy. Its board of directors accepted his resignation and in a statement said its decision was, quote, one step toward a larger goal of protecting the safety of our performers and guests and restoring trust in the Academy. Smith was not asked to give back his Oscars award. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. Its official discovery took control of CNN, HBO, and Warner Brothers today, creating a media giant. It puts many of the biggest names in TV, news, and entertainment under one umbrella. The new company, Warner Brothers Discovery, is poised to take in an estimated $50 billion a year in revenue. It starts trading on Wall Street on Monday. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins says today's guilty verdict of a former University of Southern California water polo coach represents the final conviction in the college admissions scandal dubbed Operation Varsity Blues. A jury found Jovan Vavik guilty of taking bribes to help unqualified students attend USC as recruits for his team. Also today, a Boston federal judge sentenced a former Florida prep school administrator to four months in prison for taking college entrance exams for students in exchange for money. The state is extending an emergency order to help Massachusetts hospitals and medical facilities fill staffing shortages through the end of the year. It allows nursing students and recent nursing school grads who are not yet licensed to go to work. The Massachusetts Nurses Association opposes the practice and says it's not safe to put inexperienced nurses into an unstable environment. In sports, Red Sox and Yankees game ended in New York with the Sox loss after 11 innings. Final score is 6-5 Yankees. Tonight, the Bruins are in Tampa Bay for a 7 o'clock matchup with the Lightning. Nice day today. Cool winds tonight. Look for partly cloudy skies falling to the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, maybe a few showers or thunderstorms, a gusty wind, highs around 60. For Sunday, partly sunny, slight chance of an afternoon shower in the mid-50s for a high. It's 6.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, supporting open source and making open platforms accessible to libraries of all sizes with EBSCO Folio. Learn more at EBSCO.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, going to the news with the latest from Ukraine coming up in just a couple of minutes, followed by an interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci. First, though, we just want to tell you where we are in this fun drive. We're doing very well, thanks to all of you who have called in. If you haven't, here's an added incentive just for the next hour, because we have a $15,000 goal, and we can make it with your help. And this added incentive, thanks to some generous members of the Mara Society. Magnet Chakrabarty, you want to tell us about it? Yeah, your money can go twice as far, essentially, because if we, uh, for every dollar we raise this hour, we have this $15,000 goal, as Lisa said. Generous members of our Mara Society will match it. But you've got to call this hour, which is not even 60 minutes left anymore. We've got 54 minutes for that. So 1-800-909-9287 to get in on that, that dollar-for-dollar match on your contribution, whatever you give monthly to help us meet that $15,000 goal that we have for this hour between now and 7 o'clock tonight. So 1-800-909-9287. And you can break that down, whatever donation you decide to make, uh, whatever way you want. We've been suggesting all day long, five for Friday, $5 a month. If you can do that, that would be fantastic. Uh, $10 a month, $15 a month, $100 a month if you can swing it, whatever you can afford. And remember that you can always change the amount as time goes on if your budget requires that. So what's what's not to like? Uh, you get not only uh, to support the radio station that you've chosen to listen to, the website, the podcast that you get, the newsletters that you get from WBUR, the whole array of news and information you get, but you also um, get in addition to that to make your money go twice as far. 1-800-909-9287 WBUR.org. So if $10 a month is possible for you, it becomes 20 If $100 a month is possible for you, it becomes 200 I'm sticking with base 10 here. If $1,000 is 
maybe for some of you possible becomes two thousand dollars we have a fifteen thousand goal dollar goal to meet for this hour and that dollar for dollar match from generous members of our murrow society will help us get there but you're the catalyst here it's your call to 1-800-909-9287 or online at wbur that gets that match started so do it now 800-909-9287 and we sure know that you don't have to do it um and you know that you don't have to do it and that's why it's so remarkable that so many people do it anyway thousands and thousands of people each fundraiser who realized that we wouldn't be here doing any of what you hear at wbur or see online at wbur.org if we did not have your support thank you and please join those people if you haven't given yet 1-800-909-9287 wbur.org we're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the A Lot to Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Ascent with seating for eight. CitysideSubaru.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Scott Detrow in Lviv, Ukraine. The Ukrainian government says a Russian missile hit a train station in the city of Kramatorsk this morning, killing at least 50 people. This, as officials in cities across the eastern part of the country, are telling people to evacuate ahead of an expected Russian offensive. NPR's Ader Peralta is in the capital of Kiev and joins us now. Hey, Ader. Hey, Scott. Ader, the the headline was just just horrifying. Tell us more about this missile strike. Yeah, so as you said, uh, the Ukrainian government says uh, that a missile hit a train station in the city of Kramatorsk, and uh, that happened at about 10 a.m. this morning, and they said that it happened when thousands of people were trying to evacuate. Uh, and the images uh, that have emerged from there, they're tough to look at. Uh, they show smoke rising from the station and the bodies, and bodies in civilian clothes lying motionless in pools of blood and around them uh, are what appear to be abandoned luggage uh, and bags. Um, the head of the military administration in that region said that 50 people had died uh, and among them were five children and that about 100 people are being treated uh, in the hospital. At a press briefing, uh, Pavlo Krilenko, um, who was speaking through an interpreter, uh, didn't mince words. He blamed the Russians. Let's listen. They will try uh, to create panic and they will hit the local population, local civilians. They monitor the railway station. They know where to hit, where to strike. Initially, they would only hit railways as such. And what he's saying is that uh, at first Russians used to hit empty buildings and now they're waiting for full train stations to use what he described as cluster bombs. And those are munitions that are banned by international law because the damage they cause uh, is so indiscriminate. And it's worth noting that Russia has called these allegations absolutely untrue. The train station was full, and and it was people trying to head west. The war has been going on since late February. Give us the context again of why so many people are trying to flee at this point in time from the east. Yeah, I mean, look, so where I am, where I saw you yesterday um, in Kyiv, things are calming down a bit. Stores are opening, people are in the streets. Um, Russian troops have pulled out of the northern part of this region. Um, 
But the Ukrainian military is saying that Russia is not done with this war. They believe that the troops that withdrew from Kyiv are now in Belarus, uh, but they're only there to regroup and rearm. And they believe that once that's done, they will launch an assault in eastern Ukraine. Um, so government officials in three oblasts, in three states here, in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kharkiv, um, have been telling civilians to go. Uh, so over the past few days, thousands of people have been getting on trains uh, because they were afraid that the train service would stop. Um, so that's why people are rushing to yeah. train stations there. So if train stations filled with people are being targeted, how are people going to get out of the east? What are people going to do to prepare for future strikes? Yeah, I mean, look, that I think that is the big question, because one of the remarkable things throughout this war is that trains have never stopped running. Um, they have evacuated millions of Ukrainians to safety uh, to neighboring countries. And Trains are still running, uh, but there is fear that if airstrikes like this continue, the government will have to suspend service. And people can obviously use cars and buses, uh, but that uh, will very likely mean a much slower evacuation. It's NPR's Ader Peralta coming to us from Kiev. Ader, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Hundreds of people are still dying from COVID-19 every day across the U.S. as the highly contagious variant BA2 takes hold. But there is a new study out that shows the U.S. vaccination campaign has saved more than 2 million American lives. It's also prevented 17 million hospitalizations and saved billions of dollars in healthcare costs. To talk about all of this. We're joined now by Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. So what do you think the country is in for over the next month when it comes to BA2? Well, I think we're going to be seeing an uptick of cases that we are already seeing in certain states. You know, we had a very sharp and steady decline in everything from cases to hospitalizations to deaths. And in general, on a countrywide basis, we're still seeing that. But there are some areas, counties and regions, particularly in the Northeast and here in Washington, D.C., we are seeing a turnaround and an uptick in cases. If our patent follows that of the U.K., which we usually do and are usually about three to four weeks behind them, uh -huh. they are having a significant upsurge in the number of cases uh, we are hoping that if that does happen, the degree of background immunity that we have in the country with a combination of those who've been infected and perhaps even vaccinated after infection and those who've been vaccinated and hopefully boosted, that we will not see an increase in severity in the sense of a concomitant increase significantly in the number of hospitalizations. But I think okay. it is going to be in very, you know, without a doubt that we are going to see a turnaround as people get out more into the inside uh, uh, venues without yeah. masks. Th that's well, going to be sure, certainly resulting in infections, even okay. in people well, who are vaccinated. In that case, let's turn to boosters, this idea of a second booster. What do you think the likelihood is that the general population will need a second booster by this fall? I think it's, uh, uh, you know, again, it's difficult to predict, but I would think given the fact that immunity wanes over a period of time, I would believe mm -hmm. that the FDA right now feels this way, that we're getting prepared and we're doing the test to look at the various combinations of what the most appropriate boost would be. 
that we would very likely have the population as we get into the fall and the cold season, given the waning of immunity that we've seen very yep. consistently that we will need a boost by the but time we get to the But your colleague at the FDA, your colleague Peter Marks at the FDA, he said the country can't keep boosting people every four months. Is right. that what you foresee, that we will no. have to keep boosting no. I, every I few months? I, no, I don't, okay. I don't foresee the need to boost every four months. What I see that we need to get the population vaccinated and boosted. Remember, only 50% of the people have been boosted who, who are, in fact, vaccinated with their primary series. We need to get the people to get the third dose, the third dose first, then move on to the fourth dose. But what I would imagine might happen, that as all of this turns around, we will get into what might be a yearly seasonal type of an approach hmm. because we always have respiratory like illnesses. Yeah, we have mm-hmm. something perhaps similar to flu. And I'm saying this merely as extrapolations. No one knows for certain what will be required. We will have to just look at the data and make decisions. But if you were to ask me what my projection would be, would be that by the time we get to the fall, that we will have to get everyone boosted with that fourth dose, and that we would likely see this to keep the durability of protection on a yearly basis. Okay. Well, in that case, I want to talk about indoor events because you were saying you see people still increasing their participation in indoor events. And as you well know, there were a number of infections in people who attended the annual gridiron dinner in Washington, D.C. I know you were there. Does that have you thinking twice about how you are going to be dealing with indoor events going forward? Yeah. And that's the reason why the CDC was very clear when they modified their metrics to make recommendations for indoor masking and said when the level of infection in the community gets low enough so that it's in what we call the green zone, yeah, you could do that with indoor. But if it changes and the cases go up, Mm -hmm. I, for one, and I know many people of my colleagues would do the same thing, would go back to masking indoors if we go with a high uptick of cases. That is Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President. Thank you very much for joining us again. My pleasure. When he was a global superstar, Prince was kind of a mystery. Back in 1970, he was just a kid. Are most of the kids in favor of the picketing? Yep. That young voice you hear is 11-year-old Prince Rogers Nelson. I think they should get a better education too, cause, um, and I think they should get some more money because they work, be working extra hours for us and all that stuff. That came from a local news story that year about a Minneapolis teacher strike. And after the story, that reel of tape languished in the archives of TV station WCCO for more than 50 years. Nobody suspected that kid, formerly known around the neighborhood as Skipper, would turn into Prince. It wasn't until this February that the tape was uncovered. But confirming it was Prince, that was going to take some work. It was exactly two weeks ago that I was made aware of it. WCCO reporter Jeff Wagner was shown the tape. He poured through yearbooks. He called old neighbors and Prince experts. And he showed the tape to childhood friend Terrence Jackson. That is Prince. (laughs) Standing right through the head on, right? Yeah, keep watching. Keep watching. That's Skipper. Oh, my God. 
Jackson's reaction has been the norm, says Jeff Wagner. It brought upon so much nostalgia for the deep fans, especially like people saying, I don't know why I'm in tears watching this, but I am. And Wagner found that for Minneapolis residents, the tape turned a larger than life hero into someone just like them. Look, he was just a kid on the north side of Minneapolis at one point. He was just like all the other kids. Wagner says he reached out to Prince's estate, which acknowledged the find. But just like Prince when he was alive, it wouldn't say much more. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business news, the Dow rose 0.40% today, 138 points, to finish the week at 34,721. S&P and NASDAQ lost ground. The S&P fell about a quarter of a percent to close at 44.88. NASDAQ gave up one and a third percent to settle at 13,711. Details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. Red Sox-Yankees game today, the debut of the regular season, and it went into 11 innings. In the end, it was Yankees 6, Red Sox 5. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, a gusty wind, maybe some scattered thunderstorms with high temperatures nearing 60 for Sunday, partly sunny. The off chance of a shower in the afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. It's 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mass Art Auction. Bidding is open on 325 works. Visit the exhibition in person and bid online. Learn more at massartauction.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. Finding misinformation can be tricky. We question people in power. We want to hear from people in power, but we want to deliver their statements in context, surrounded by facts, which is what you deserve. It takes resources to get it right, and we can't do that without your support. Help us by giving to this station. Thanks. We can't do it without you. Call 1-800-909-9287. Before we go back to the news, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have a goal of $15,000 to raise by 7 o'clock. Meghna Chakrabarty is with me right now. I'm Lisa Mullins. And last night, Meghna, in this same hour, we also had a goal. We actually made it and exceeded it. Hoping we do this, we can do the same thing tonight. Definitely. And we're getting help doing that because we have this dollar-for-dollar dollar match from generous members of, the Murrow, of our Murrow Society. And if you call 1-800-909-9287 anywhere between now and 7 o'clock, which is rapidly approaching, they will give a dollar-for-dollar dollar match to your contribution. And that goes to help pay for the news and the stories that you hear every day here at WBUR. But it's not just the news because WBUR also has extensive arts and culture coverage. So listen to a moment to Tanya Rally. She's assistant managing editor for arts and culture at WBUR. And she described to us why arts coverage adds really richness to life. This is a, a great way to find out about things happening in the city that are just intellectually stimulating, that are also just enlightening 
And in a way, I suppose that also just sort of feed the soul. I mean, as things in the world have felt so dire, we've been living with the pandemic now for going into our third year. And it's just good to remember um, how important art is in these times. And so this is what we're interested in offering to our audiences. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. And Tanya mentioned there uh, that the arts uh, and the arts coverage feeds the soul. And so much of what we do feeds the mind and feeds the need for joy. In fact, the story that we just heard about that found tape of Prince from when he was about 11 years old. And this is the kind of thing that you expect from WBUR, um, the unexpected, really, all things considered, which you could uh, apply that name to just about everything you hear on WBUR. So we're hoping that right now you'll take advantage of this monthly, um, make a monthly contribution to take advantage of this dollar-for-dollar match on the table. We need to raise a total of $15,000 by 7 o'clock tonight, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287. Again, is the number to call. Take advantage of that dollar-for-dollar match we've got on the table right now for just the next 35 minutes. And especially if you're one of our listeners who's able to give uh, a gift of, say, $1,000, $2,000, $5,000, if that's even uh, you know, a possibility for you, now's the time to make that into $10,000 because of this match. So one 800 909-9287 is the number to call. We are grateful for large donations, modest donations, whatever donation you can make to WBUR. And uh, that's why we've been saying for this Friday, five for Friday, if you can do $5 a month, we would be so grateful for that as well because it shows that you want to be an active participant in this radio station. You understand that we cannot do it without you. We don't have uh, millions of dollars and billions, in fact, in commercial income from commercials. You'll never Never hear a commercial on this station. We don't want them. If we want, if we're going to be beholden to anybody, it's you. You are the cornerstone of what WBUR does. So please, right now, hold up your end of the bargain. You've chosen to listen to this non-commercial radio station. So please make a contribution right now in whatever amount you can afford. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven or WBUR.org. Once again, we have a goal of a total of $15,000 that we need to raise by 7 o'clock to stay on track on this fun drive. We have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table, so make your pledge of support. Say it's $15 a month. It means $30 a month for us. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Ukrainians fleeing the war in their country have begun arriving in the United States. Many are doing so by traveling to Mexico's northern border and asking U.S. immigration agents to let them in on humanitarian grounds. NPR's Adrian Florido traveled to Tijuana, Mexico, where thousands of Ukrainians have landed in just the past few days. So many Ukrainians have arrived in Tijuana this week that the city's government turned a sports complex into a makeshift shelter. Cots and roll-up mattresses everywhere. Yesterday, hundreds of people were waiting for their turn to take a shuttle to the border crossing with San Diego and ask to be let in. 1983. Your number is? 2221. Irina Mereshko has been at the shelter for two days. 
Earlier this week, she flew from her home in Los Angeles to Warsaw, Poland, and then took a train into Ukraine, where she met her sister and her sister's 14-year-old son, Ivan. Her sister is staying to support Ukrainian troops, but she wanted her son to come to the U.S. until the war is over. We uh, told him it will be like a long summer vacation, break, break, in California. As they said goodbye, everyone, including Ivan, understood that to be more of a hope. If be honest, it can be last goodbye between us. Yeah, you know. yeah it was a really difficult year. Mereshko decided to come through Mexico when she learned the easiest way to get Ivan into the U.S. was to show up at the border and request humanitarian admission for a year, newly available to Ukrainians. On their final flight into Tijuana, almost every other passenger was Ukrainian. Olya Krajnik is one of the volunteers running this shelter. She says the number of Ukrainians arriving at this border city has ballooned faster than anyone had expected. Six days ago, it was 350. In one day? In one day. And the last three days, we were right about 1,000. 1,000 people arriving in Tijuana Airport every day? With Ukrainian passports, yeah, waiting to cross into the United States, yep. Krajnik is a real estate executive in Silicon Valley, but like many Ukrainian Americans, when she learned that Ukrainians were arriving in Tijuana, she dropped everything and came down to help. They found a growing tent city near the border, so they worked with Tijuana officials to set up this shelter and with immigration agents to take 50 people at a time to the border. But Ukrainians are still arriving much faster than agents can process them. And the, our grassroots volunteer effort just cannot scale to keep, keep up. She says this effort needs help from a large nonprofit. For now, it's taking two to three days for a newly arrived Ukrainian to be led into the U.S. That's a lot faster than people from Latin American countries who've been waiting months to get in. Still, some Ukrainians have been traveling to other border cities hoping to get in faster. At the shelter, the mood is a mix of Mexican hospitality mingled with trays of Ukrainian food, along with the anxiety of war-rattled families. Alexei Ivkov drove from north of San Francisco to meet his 74-year-old mother, Tatiana. She spent weeks determined to ride the war out in a subway tunnel in the city of Kharkiv before her son was able to convince her to come to Tijuana. When he picked her up, he noticed the PTSD right away. Because we came out in the airport, it was some truck stopping, and it was just loud noise, and she was like, oh my God, what's going on? Even so, she's already thinking of her return home to Ukraine. As soon as it's going to quiet down a little bit, she will try to go back, basically. For now, she's cheerful, she says, excited for the big family party, her grandkids waiting for her in California. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Tijuana, Mexico. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And BU College of Fine Arts, presenting Shakespeare in Love at Booth Theater, April 30th through May 8th. Reserve tickets at bu.edu slash booth.